There is no health without mental health. Hi, welcome to Beyond Madness. I am your host, Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. I'm a psychiatrist, and this podcast series features psychiatrists in conversation with myself discussing mental health issues, issues that affect our society on a daily basis. Emotional issues can affect you or someone in your life at any time. The intention of this podcast series is to give you a better understanding of psychiatry. Beyond Madness is proudly brought to you by Atcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Today's topic is eating disorders when food is the enemy. And on today's podcast, I have the pleasure and privilege of interviewing a colleague and friend, clinical psychologist, Dorianne Wheel, also known as Dr. D., a media veteran and legend who on many an occasion has interviewed me for her various radio programs. For this episode, a role reversal, but ultimately the same outcome, hopefully a meaningful conversation. Dori, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chris. I'm really delighted to be here with you. Excellent. Eating disorders are amongst the most lethal of psychiatric conditions and certainly where the sufferer does not die, they live compromised lives dominated by fear, anxiety, avoidance, where a pursuit of something better takes them down a path of misery, and this is not an exaggeration, certainly based on my decades, I might add, of clinical experience, but just to set the scene in terms of what eating disorders are. And I always think of eating disorders along three dimensions, namely thoughts, actions, and consequences. The thoughts being excessive and inappropriate concerns about weight and shape, the actions being efforts to address those concerns through diet or activity, and of course the consequences where you have an impact on physical well-being, emotional well-being, cognitive well-being, and this ultimately leads to a reduction in functioning socially, academically, occupationally, and in some instances it can lead to death. Now in terms of the current diagnostic criteria, or should I say the Diagnostic Classification System, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders, which is in version 5. Anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa would be the big two that I think that uh, Dorian and I are going to focus on. There have been some additions to the DSM-5, such as binge eating disorder, but we're not going to be focusing on those, although there may be a common theme for all of these conditions. And just in a word, anorexia for me is about restriction, in terms of starvation and weight loss. Bulimia nervosa is more about chaos with binge eating and purging. But in either of these two conditions, and I would include binge eating disorder, food is the enemy. Dori, what would you say to that? Absolutely. And it's really crazy because, of course, you know, food is so much a part of our lives. We use food to celebrate social occasions. We use food, obviously, for nutrition. You can't live without food. So it's very much part of our lives, and you want to think of food as a friend, as something that you need physically and something that you share socially and something that you celebrate deliciously. Absolutely. And in the actual fact, you know, food does become the enemy with these kind of eating disorders. And you mentioned the two main ones, one in terms of being very restrictive, and we can go into that yes. more with anorexia, the other one being more chaotic in terms of bulimia or bulimia nervosa. It's actually quite interesting that the behavior around food also reflects the personalities Absolutely. quite a lot of the people who are engaged in these kind of beef, of, of excessive and very destructive and concerning behaviors. And I also want to say just before we go yeah. into it more is that it's much more common than we think. 
there's a lot of denial in the beginning on behalf of the sufferer. It's a kind of secret that they have in the beginning. With bulimia, it's sort of like an insurance policy. I'm going to be able to do this and then get rid of it, and I'll keep it to myself until such time as the consequences that you spoke out manifest and spill out and starts affecting their lives in a very extreme way. And anorexia, because of the such the, a distortion in thought and the distortion in body image, the initial part of the illness on behalf of the sufferer is characterized by a lot of denial. So getting into the treatment of it so is, takes a long time. Well, you see, I think that treatment is literally an episode in itself mm. because the truth is that these are complex conditions and there are no simple answers. And I think one of the issues, and we can jump straight to that, is that the expectation of family or partners or parents, siblings, is that once you've identified the problem, you just fix it. Mm. And the truth of the matter is one of the issues that I found uh, in Treating patients with eating disorders is that you spend a long time just establishing a relationship because the issue of trust is so key in the treatment process. And I think that's often very difficult for loved ones to actually understand that in order to move forward, you have to have this foundation of trust. You mentioned, I mean, we were talking about food as the enemy. So I, just to put it in, in, in more stark contrast, imagine if you were scared of breathing. Oxygen. Mm. Imagine if you were scared of drinking mm. water or fluids. These are all life-sustaining, life-requiring uh, activities. So imagine what it would be like to live with that kind of fear, how profound it is. I think that it's an incredible analogy that you're making because that is how deep it is. You know, you speak about the reaction of loved ones or partners. When you don't have it, it's quite difficult to understand. As you say, now we've identified it. We'll send you off to a dietitian. They'll tell you exactly what to do and then do it. We know that when food is the enemy, it's so much more complex. It's about control. It's about power struggles. It's about restriction. It's about discipline. It's about self-esteem. It's about reflecting a societal norm that becomes distorted in your mind. It's about relationships. There are so many dimensions. And, of course, as you said, there's lack of trust in the beginning because usually the sufferer is so invested in what they're doing as something that they have to do and an initial belief perhaps that, look, this is good for me. Don't disrupt me. I don't trust you until such time as they say, I can't carry on living like this. Let me have a relationship with you and will you partner me? In going through this journey and that's in fact what you, because I know that you deal with eating disorders a lot and other people in the treatment capacity do. You see, I think that it's that ability therapeutically to form a partnership where it's not you as the psychiatrist, psychologist or, or treating professional versus the patient. It's you and the patient and their support system against the illness. Mm. But in order to kind of externalize the illness is very difficult because these illnesses are such that the sufferer 
and the illness becomes so intimately interwoven mm. that it's very difficult for the sufferer to see the illness in themselves. Mm. I think it's an amazing thing to start externalizing it and making the illness into the enemy. And the way that one, that, that I think one of the ways, there are mm. many ways, the relationship is very central. And the beginning part of the relationship is a very, very deep understanding where you listen to understand, you do not listen to respond. In the beginning, you understand however irrational it might be. And this is why it's extremely difficult for loved ones to understand it. They care about the person and they want the person to be better. So what they'll do is they start giving alternative arguments. No, that isn't true or you don't see yourself like that. The beginning phase of any kind of intervention in this is to first connect with the person with all of your senses receptive in an understanding way to gain that kind of trust. And then I think the other part of it is what we're talking about now. How do you begin to see the illness as interfering with the good functioning of your life? You mentioned socially, you mentioned academically, relationally, and usually when that trust has been developed, the person can begin to step back and see that they could simply be happier. That they are not, this isn't serving them in the way they thought it would serve them. That they are going through life being controlled by something that they begin to see, begin to see is outside of themselves. And when they begin to see that you align with a healthy part of the person, it's you and me against this illness. How are we going to outsmart it? How do we say enough is enough? How do we say you're not going to stop enjoying pleasurable or appropriate activities? Because often that anhedonia, particularly with anorexia nervosa, is a part of it. How do you, what, what do you envisage for your own life that might still be thin and beautiful, but not sick and destructive? You see, I think that one of the issues for me is what is the motivation to begin with? You know, where do we, where do we start? And so I, I will often understand with my patients that they come to a certain crossroad where their lives for them are not happy, pleasant places to be. And they make a decision as to what they think might improve their lives. Absolutely. Now, their lives could be difficult for a whole host of reasons. And we spoke about where you mentioned control, and I think we'll, we'll come to that. And so for me, it's a question of do I turn left or do I turn right? And unfortunately, they might have turned left, which takes them down the path of illness. And I think what needs to be understood is that the pursuit is one of happiness, mm. that the intention is never to be miserable. The intention is to be happy and to be content. And so I often say to people, you know, nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I think I'll become anorexic. Mm. I think that's a good thing Mm. because everybody would understand that that is actually a pathology and that's not where you want to be. And so when that person decides for whatever reason, they are going to lose a couple of kilos because they believe that that's what's going to make their life better. They have no way of necessarily knowing whether they might be the one that takes them further down the path and then into that dark hole where the illness actually sucks you in like a magnetic force mm-hmm. and holds onto you. You know, I often compare the, um, the illness to a very jealous mistress or partner. It will not let you go. Mm-hmm. And you literally have to fight your way 
out of that relationship to be free. And one of the difficulties with that is that it, it actually, I think, as you've been saying, it's not really a choice in the beginning. The choice is happiness. Yes. It's not a choice to be ill. It's being sucked in. And also the belief, no, I'm not anorexic. And I'm not becoming anorexic and it's certainly not a choice. You know, I'm just going to lose a few kilos and I will do it well. And I will find that this is something that I can do, mm. maybe which is so difficult for other people in my orbit to do. And we see these images all the time bombarded with them societally and on social media. And we believe that this is the way to look in order to be happy. So we go down that route. And then part of it is what develops afterwards. We just stop seeing ourselves, the reality of where it is. You know, I remember where you also worked when we were with at the anorexic unit at Tara Hospital, we had that quite ingenious little machine, actually, which was a box. It was a, just an enclosed box with a strip of light in it, and the light had a lever that you could adjust. Mm. And we used to ask the, the our clients, our patients, to just estimate, you know, the width of their chest, the width of their waist, the width of their hips, and they absolutely always overestimated it. And even when you showed them the facts – Look what you think. Let's look what it really is. It was still hard for them to absolutely believe that they were not what was in their head and what they wanted to be. And this is the so-called distorted body image that we see. And this is a function of the starvation process, actually. And I remember that David Norris, our predecessor at Tara Mm. Hospital, actually published a paper in Psychological Medicine dealing with the extent to which people – misunderstand or, or, or misperceive their bodily dimensions because even normal who are not necessarily anorexic have a measure of that distortion. So anorexia takes it to an extreme. But I think the issue of, I just want to come back control. to the control. Mm. I want to come back to that issue of control because I think it's so important. It's, 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 it's interesting how society values weight loss and thinness. And initially what you often find is that the individual who's on their way to becoming anorexic has actually been acknowledged Mm -hmm. for their discipline, for their weight loss, and how much better they might be looking. That's indeed if they are. And to what extent that has actually promoted the pathology because societal expectations are having an impact. And so I think the role of society and media images and stereotypes of beauty, as if there's only one type of beauty, you know, it's like, is there only one type of beauty? Or if I show you a hundred people who would all be maybe individually classified as beautiful, do they all look the same? Probably not. Mm. And so I think one of the discussions is what is beauty? I'd like to say that there are many kinds of beauty, but I also want to say perhaps sort of being involved with it, maybe even for myself. There actually is one, I have to say, there's one predominant kind of beauty. You know, you can have perhaps be many colors. Perhaps you can have different lengths of hair. You know, there are variations. But actually, I just think that there is one kind of beauty, particularly in the society that we live in. There shouldn't be. I disagree with it. But you actually do have to be thin. You know, that's like the predominant thing. And there's so much. It should not be like that. And people will argue about it. And you're going to probably have a backlash because there are many kinds of beauty. But this 
whole thing, the extent of it, the power of it, the control of it. You know, you kind of can be whatever you like, but that is non-negotiable in society. Well, I think there's been a lot of talk recently about um, Instagram and social media and the evils of social media and the uh, slippery slope of social media. And I think to some extent that has probably made something of a contribution, but Instagram wasn't always there and eating disorders were there long before Instagram. But there are two key issues for me. You know, they speak about the seven deadly sins and I always add two more, comparison and scrutiny. Mm. So I always say to my patients, I promise you, if you look in the mirror, you will find what you don't want to see in yourself. So if you scrutinize, you will come away dissatisfied. If you compare, there will always be somebody who's more desirable than you, who has greater attributes than you, you will be disappointed. So there are two kind of golden rules for my patients, which I try to really work hard to to change. And that is the inclination to scrutinize and the inclination to compare. And I think that this is not just about patients. I think this is a societal issue, actually, because at the end of the day, we might walk around as completely unfulfilled individuals by virtue of scrutiny and comparison. Mm. And I really do think that these are issues that need to be understood and dealt with. Mm. I'm not quite sure what you... Look, I think that that's very true. And I think that there's something else that is a result of the scrutinizing and the comparison. And I think that that's shame. That mm. comes into it. You know, after indulging in that kind of thing, you get to the point of not enough. I'm not good enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not something enough. If we're talking about these body images and eating disorders, it's usually not perfect enough. Mm. Okay, so this part of me might be better, but this part of me isn't enough. Then they live with shame of not being good enough. And then what happens is the shame precipitates the illness even more because I'll try harder to be perfect. And that trying harder for perfection and just being good enough that kind of dynamic means just being more restrictive if we're talking about anorexia. If we're talking about bulimia, the, the kind of volatility, the chaos that you were talking about, the compulsion, that huge binge eating. We haven't gone into that very much uh, now. But then I've got to be good enough by getting rid of it. And the only way that I can feel good enough is to I sense the shame. I lost control that you're talking about. I'm not strong enough, disciplined enough. And certainly not thin enough. I'll find ways. And they're destructive, very destructive, terrible ways. So with bulimia, I think what it shares in common with anorexia is what I started out by describing in terms of those three aspects. There is also amongst the bulimic population this idea of a perfect body and a certain weight and a certain shape. So one of the biggest precipitants of a binge episode where you lose control and you consume a large amount of food in a very discreet period of time, is starvation. So you often find with the bulimics, because of the binge episode, even if they purge, be it with vomiting, use of laxatives, some use non-purging means, exercise, others use restriction, where they actually respond to a binge episode with restriction, which is the biggest precipitant of the, the next binge, binge mm -hmm. episode. Mm -hmm. And so they land up in that cycle. And one of the things you have to work with when you're working with bulimic patients is a restoration of a stable, consistent, predictable, adequate eating plan. You know, I've got a term for it that's my – you know, we, you, you kind of develop a common language 
which the patients begin to understand. So we talk about go for the gray because they are so black and white mm. in many things, especially, and that's reflected in eating. So, I mean, I'm sure that you've experienced it often, this absolute starvation and restriction or otherwise the unrealistic, you know, unrealistic dietary or diets that they put themselves on. And I've often seen it. The diet starts when? The diet always starts on Monday. The diet starts on Monday. So what they do. When you come back from holiday. Is, well, when you come back. But I mean, they're so precise that it's, it's so precise that they look at the clock and one minute past 12 midnight is now Monday. So five to 12, I'm stuffing the last piece of chocolate cake into my mouth because at 12 o'clock, there will never be any chocolate cake ever in my whole history going forward ever. There is none. It's all becomes before Monday. <laughs> You know, in, and nothing becomes, uh, is after Monday. And so what happens is let's just say I've set myself a goal that it's going to be only apples. I will eat only apples and I'm going to do it for a week. Monday they manage to do it. Tuesday, maybe they manage to do it. Wednesday they pass a bowl of fruit. In the fruit is a banana. I pick up the banana and I eat it. Now, in my mind, I can't say, okay, it's still fruit. I've broken it. Correct. It's now broken. So often until next Monday, I'm going to go absolutely crazy because the diet starts again. Or I'm going to restrict or even, my, or I'm going to restrict even further because I mean, I've broken the rule. Because I've broken the rule and that means not even apples or nothing. So, you know, these ways of thinking, and that's also obviously what is addressed primarily in therapy, the ways that you think. All or nothing. And a very much all or nothing. And when we're talking about the restrictor starvation people, which are more the anorexic, you know, one of the characteristics is that they usually are grossly underweight. Whereas if we're talking about bulimia, sometimes they're not. They're at a good weight, which yes. they might not see, or sometimes they might even be slightly above weight or in their perception slightly above, and then they need to lose it. So what, that's one of the, the behavior is the most defining or differentiating factor, but also weight. And you know what's interesting is that most anorexics were never overweight to start mm. with. So the idea that this is simply about a diet for aesthetic and beauty reasons is very simplistic. And I think you alluded to that earlier, is that we're dealing with a complex situation where there are layers of uncertainty, insecurity, self-esteem. And I often look at anorexia as a very powerful communication. You know, it's like silence. If somebody is silent and just doesn't respond to you, it's kind of unsettling. If somebody stops eating at the family table, that is very powerful. And suddenly this person starts to slip away. So what I'm really saying is that anorexia is also not an attention-seeking but it draws attention to a distressed individual. And they have a story because people often say to me, what are the causes of anorexia? Depends who you're speaking to. Correct. Mm. I say as many patients as I've spoken mm. to, as many causes as I'll find. Mm. It's a story. And one has to understand the story. How did we get to that point? That often brings the families into play. And remember, we're dealing predominantly with women. I'm not leaving men out of the equation, but we are dealing predominantly with women, predominantly adolescents who come from a family structure. And I think one of the difficult things is for families to engage with what needs to change. So I'm always very careful. There's no blaming. I don't apportion blame because that's not helpful. It just creates defensiveness and a he said, she said. It's all about what needs to change, 
how do we all contribute and become part of the same team to work against the illness? Mm. And we find that when you find the issues that do need to change, the result of that kind of family intervention is beneficial for the whole family. Absolutely. So, for instance, I mean, there are many things, as you say. If it's making a statement of a power struggle, like I can do this and you can't, we all talk, all the girls in our family talk about losing weight. I'm going to be the one. You won't do it better than me. I've got the discipline and I'm trying to show you something by doing that. If you intervene in that relationship, the results of it would be better for everybody concerned as well. So whatever the story might be, and there are as many stories as there are people, you say not attention seeking, but it could be, it's not deliberately attention seeking, but my goodness, now, you know, you're looking at me because I'm the identified one as sick and you can't be cross with me because I'm not well. Well, often they are. And often they see that often they are because how the hell can you do this? Just eat something for goodness sake. You know, how difficult can it be? And I am asserting myself because you can't make me. That's one of the dynamics. You've got control of a lot of things, you know, my mom and dad, but this is under my, I will decide what I will and will not. So there are many, many dynamics, as you say. So what's interesting is that as opposed to drawing attention to a problem, they become the problem. Mm. And nothing else gets necessarily dealt with because that's got to be dealt with. And I think that one of the big issues, obviously, with anorexia, not so much with bulimia, although bulimia is a toxic condition in its own right, is that you're dealing with a condition where loss of life is always a possibility. Mm. And until you can address the weight loss, it's very difficult to get to the issues. People almost want to jump into the issues before you restore weight. And certainly it's the other way around. You know, I just have to agree with you so strongly. Sorry for interrupting because, you know, people sometimes, our colleagues, people in our profession, especially those, you know, who haven't worked in an anorexic unit or who try and deal with this kind of thing on an outpatient basis. And their main stance, which has been very successful, is interpersonal psychotherapy. We've said that you have to develop the relationship Relationship. and maybe getting into the problems with let's hear what the story really means with very very good intention and out of necessity but sometimes you feel that it's premature Mm. I remember I mean long ago with our initial mutual colleague that Dr. Norris he used to say you know sometimes you get anorexics or people who have bulimia with insight I've got an anorexic with insight they're still anorexic they have now worked with these therapists they understand themselves better they know what the problems are but it hasn't necessarily been translated into the shift we are looking for behavioral change we're not only looking for insight It's not just a matter of, okay, I know why. The knowing why has to be manifest in different kinds of behavior where the food is not the enemy and you start becoming less fearful of it. And how do you make the food your friend without being scared, scared of it? And how do you identify the real enemies? Yeah, Because that's what you really need to look at. What do you need to address? But the one thing that's very important in terms of what you've been saying, insight is one thing, but I've always found that insight is meaningless without change. Exactly. So sometimes where they say ignorance is bliss, that could actually be true. Because you deal with the change first. Well, and so I think the, the point is change is hard. But I think what's very important to understand is that time and timing 
are very critical components of the intervention and the therapeutic process. It takes time and things happen when they happen. And often you can be going along and, and nothing seems to be changing, but it's a question of time before the insight is converted into meaningful understanding and you fully internalize, okay, so if I just do this. But even the smallest of change is very scary mm-hmm. for the patient. Mm-hmm. And I think this is often what's difficult because most people are like, well, just do it. It's mm-hmm. not quite like mm-hmm. that. I want to change tack slightly. I wanted to introduce a condition that is not part of the official DSM-5, orthorexia. Mm. And for me, this, you know, at first I was a little bit skeptical when I started reading about the concept, but then I started looking around and I began to see what orthorexia is, is this preoccupation with health, this excess in terms of healthy eating, healthy lifestyle, exercise. And so it kind of struck me that this is the new disorder, potentially, because everything is about health. So literally what you're doing is you are hiding, in inverted commas, this condition beneath the veneer of doing a good thing, living a healthy life. But anything in extreme is ultimately pathological. Mm -hmm. And I think when you start to see how it affects your ability to socialize, who you socialize with, what you can, what you can't eat, to what extent you can do things at a certain time of day when you have scheduled to do something specific in line with your healthy approach, extremes create problems. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are moving into an era, and we've probably arrived, where I think orthorexia may be, Emerging as something which we need to understand and we need to look at because key to all of these conditions is one word for me, balance. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that at a time where you start calling all of these conditions, well, you know, bulimia, there is unhealthy, uncharacteristic behavior that isn't necessarily only to do with extent. In other words, it's unhealthy to purge excessively. Absolutely. So it's not only, but I mean weight loss, of course. But if we talk about this, it is about balance. So it's very, very kind of woke, if you like, in the sort of, it's very current to be concerned about health. And in fact, it's only when it becomes obsessive and it starts interfering with you. But I've just come back. I have to tell you that I've just come back um, from, well, I was in Paris, but I was in London before. You can't go into a restaurant or a coffee shop or whatever and just say, I'll have coffee with milk. You know, what is milk? You know, it doesn't exist. It, is it almond? Is it oat? Is it fat-free? Is it, there are about seven kinds, you know, it's that exhausting. are on the menu. And there's a kind of disdain if you choose one that isn't. Good that old is, dairy. Is a good old dairy, you know. There is such an awareness of this to an extent where it does become, you know, we've all seen it interfere with you. So you're very nervous about where you're going to eat, about who is cooking the food. It starts interfering with your social relationships. And if you become excessive in it, you're talking about extent, it can affect you on a physiological level, of course. No question. You know, with many, many nutrients being left out because you feel that only one kind of thing is healthy. So I think that it is something to be concerned about. And it's becoming so... You see, the thing is initially it's sought after. Correct. And it's something that is applauded Certainly by a kind of a the does crowd sound, in the does community. Does that sound familiar? Sounds so in terms familiar. of what we've said earlier. Absolutely. Dory, I'm going to have to wrap up. 
But certainly we've discussed many issues related to eating disorders, and I've certainly enjoyed the discussion. We haven't dealt with treatment exclusively, but at least we've touched on it, and Mm. certainly I think it would be an episode in itself. Suffice it to say, understanding issues contributes towards treatment, which whilst never straightforward or easy, will in most instances, and I think one has to say that and give an optimistic flavor to the intervention as difficult as it is, but in most instances it will lead to improvement and a better quality of life. Most of us take eating for granted, just another behavior which should simply be for sustenance and pleasure. For others, it's torture. Dori, thank you for joining. Thank you very much. Remember, there is no health without mental health. I hope today's podcast has been enlightening. I am Professor Christopher Paul Sabo. This is Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave.